C.S. Lewis um, was a great writer, and uh, his children's literature was um, just uh, un unequaled in, uh, in the history of, of good modern literature. And this comes from the Chronicles of Narnia. Um, it's a lovely story in which there's a Christ character called Aslan, and uh, the land of Narnia is the land where all of the drama of uh, this witch's intent um, are lived out. We have been talking about the person of Jesus, so why are we now going to go over to Narnia? The reason is that as we have been thinking about the, the life of Jesus, we're, we're, we're coming to the, the core question, which is basically this. Who was Jesus and why did he come? So we, we've kind of turned everything back to zero and started over and asked the question, if we didn't know anything about Jesus, if we hadn't been part of church, if we weren't part of a thousand or a couple of thousand years of tradition about religion, and we, for the first time, heard about this person in history called Jesus, how would we proceed? What, what do we know about him, and how do we know what we know about him? So we've proposed that we have, at the very least, and we'll build out from this as time goes on, but at the very least, we have a really accurate record of the things that he did and said. So as we go back and ask, how do we know that this historic Jesus really existed? How do we know that we have a good record of what he did and said? Scholars will affirm that we have a close record from eyewitnesses. And if eyewitnesses today are thought to give credible testimony, in the time of Jesus, all the more were eyewitnesses considered the authorities on what had been taking place. So we have great eyewitness testimony about what Jesus said and did. So we're able to go and read what they wrote to us. And then from there, we build it out, as I say, to what others wrote before Jesus, after Jesus. But we have these friends of his who said, we were there, and we heard him say these things, and we saw him do these things. So we've looked at two samples from the records of the Gospels. Um, the first was when one of his friends said, I heard him say several times something that began with the words, I am. He said, I am the good shepherd, I am the door, I am all of these things. And he said them against the background, as we saw, of a really complicated religion in which there were thousands and thousands of rules and which to be a faithful religious person meant that you almost had to be a lawyer or a scholar or a student to figure out how you're supposed to live your life. And Jesus, when he said the I am statements, basically brought religion down to the every person and said, yeah, they have all these rules, but it's actually quite like this. It's like being a sheep in the pen of a good shepherd. And in lovely, refreshing ways, Jesus said, let's just set aside the books and books and books of the scholars and religious leaders. It's like this to be in a religious life, to live in a relationship with, with God. And then the next set that we looked at were not the things that he said by beginning with I am, but we listened to his stories. And so Luke has a particular sample of the stories that Jesus told. And as we read through those stories, um, we heard him once again echo the things that Jesus said that really were in opposition to the way that religion was practiced. If it was complicated in the minds of the Jews in Jerusalem, it was because of the religious leaders, not because religion should be complicated. 
And so Jesus told these lovely stories, and we began to discover things about God by the way that Jesus described situations. For example, the story of the prodigal son tells us some things about God that are just astonishing. That against a rebellious son who went and wasted his father's inheritance, um, this father welcomed the son back home. And what a difference that is from a human caricature of a father. Rather than being punitive, rather than saying, that's it, you've run, out of, you've run out of rope, here is a father who is looking down the road for his son to come home and then runs out and says, welcome home, we're going to have a big party now. And we think, that's not the way human fathers would be, and Jesus says, but it is the way my father is. That's what Abba, Father, our God, is like. So we asked last week, is that the point then, that the whole mission of Jesus was to come and correct religion? And in part, the answer is yes. He did come to challenge and to correct religion, religious beliefs and religious practices. But if we were to say that that's the end of the story, um, we would be missing so, so, so much. And Jesus himself helped us understand that by the hints that he gave. Because when the disciples, when his followers said, okay, so let's fix this, And let's do it by having a movement. Um, Let's do it by challenging the Romans. Let's do it by fighting the Pharisees. And Jesus said, oh, okay, okay, but I need to tell you that I'm going to die. And they would say, well, what's, what's that got to do with any of this? Why do you have to die? Just fix religion. Teach people how to live morally and ethically and we'll be done here. And Jesus said, no, there's something more than that. So the more than that is the magic deeper yet. Magic. And you might say, well, why are we talking about magic in church? Well, magic is just simply the way things work. So that's all I mean by magic, the way things work, the way this world works, the way um, the universe was designed to function and the way it, it does function. And the story that we saw on the clip, and we'll see a few more of those before we're done with this, Um, The story is the witch who says, now remember, the deep magic tells me and tells us that since Edmund committed treachery, he's mine. And you can't go against that magic. That's the way things work in Narnia. If there's someone who creates um, havoc, who behaves in a way that is treacherous, then that person is mine. I take him to the stone table. I take him to the place of execution, and I own him. And you know that, Aslan. So in the clip, we saw the queen and Aslan go into the tent, where she states her claim and stakes her claim against Edmund and says that unless Aslan is willing to give his life in Edmund's place, Edmund is hers. We don't hear that yet, but that's the way the the story goes on. That she claims, according to the deep magic. And there's a lovely quote a little bit later on in uh, C.S. Lewis's uh, accounting of this. And he says this, though the witch knew the deep magic, there's a magic deeper still which she did not know. Her knowledge goes back only to the dawn of time. That's what Aslan says to the girls a little bit later on. And here's the way that goes on in the the literature. If she could have looked a little further back into the stillness and the darkness before time dawned, she would have read there a different incantation. 
She would have known that when a willing victim who had committed no treachery was killed in a traitor's stead, the table would crack and death itself would start working backwards. One of my most favorite lines in all of Narnia, death itself would start working backwards. Death is our enemy. We live our lives either pretending it doesn't exist, we live our lives trying to make sure it doesn't creep up on us, and we live our lives with a clock that keeps on ticking and takes us nearer and nearer to the moment when death has its victory. And in the story, C.S. Lewis says, death itself would start working backwards. Why did Jesus come? He didn't come to fix religion. He didn't come just to teach us how to live, although he did do both of those. He came to deal with death. He came to have death working backwards. And that was not accomplished by his teaching. It wasn't accomplished by his example. It wasn't accomplished by his correcting religion. Uh, it was a deeper magic. It was something that was even beyond the scope of what Satan could grasp could happen. So do we understand that, that Satan is not the equal and opposite of God? Sometimes I think that's the way we function, that God is good, Satan is bad, sometimes Satan wins, sometimes God wins, and we think God wins at the end. Satan is a created being, and he's finite. He doesn't know what happened before the, the, the foundation of time or the dawn of time. And so Lewis plays on that, and he says, if, if the witch had known that there was a magic deeper still that said, even though the way things work are, Edmund is hers, there's a deeper magic that says if there's a willing victor who has committed no treachery, who dies in the place of the traitor, um, the traitor goes free. She didn't know that. And what we want to talk about is this magic deeper still, which is the whole intent of Jesus' coming and the whole function of his coming into the world. Not just to be a good teacher, not just to fix religion, but to do something incredible. So let me show you just three passages of Scripture, three short passages of Scripture that I think help us get to the deeper magic, the magic deeper still about Jesus' coming. And it's the answer to the question, why did God have to become mortal? That's a fair question, isn't it? Why could God not just have fixed everything? Could he not have? What, what's all this about he had to become a human? And later we're going to ask him, why did he have to die? Why did he have to die? What is all that about? Why, couldn't, why could God just not speak from heaven and everything would be fixed? He's powerful enough for that, isn't he? Well, it's because of magic. It's because of the way God designed this universe to function. And because of the magic, and because of the magic that is deeper yet, um, we begin to understand what Jesus came to do, and it's, it is just incredible why he came. But why did God have to become mortal? Why could he not just have stayed in heaven and said from there what was to be? John chapter 1 says this, The word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we saw his glory, glory as of the only begotten from the Father, full of grace and truth. Here's the answer to the question, why did God have to become mortal? It's because he couldn't die. So I try to get your head around that. God had to become a mortal 
Because as God, he was immortal and couldn't die. Immortal, invisible, God only wise is what we say, right? When we say God is immortal, what do we mean? God can't die. So in the, the magic of what God designed and in what happened before the dawn of time, in the magic deeper still, it was necessary for a death. Somehow or other, in, into this equation, we have to introduce a death. And the reason God had to become mortal is that as someone who is immortal, by definition and by description, he couldn't die. We're going to have to ask, well, why did he have to die? But, well, let's just start there. He became immortal so he could die. He didn't become immortal so he could fix religion. He didn't come uh, as immortal to teach the best way to be mortals. He came primarily to become immortal so he could die. So John says, we were with him. And we have come to understand that he is the word. And John plays on Genesis chapter 1. And just as Genesis 1 says, God said, let there be light and all of the other things. And there was. John says, now the word was with God. And the word was God. He was in the beginning with God, and everything was created by him. Everything was made by him. There's nothing created that wasn't created by him. So John is, is making a strong case and saying, this one that we knew as a mortal, get ready for this. He was God at the beginning. N not just a subordinate to God, not a creation of God, but he was... John says it's, it's as though he was the, the glory of the father. The, he had the glory of the, you know, the first son of a father. It was, they were indistinguishable from each other. And the one who was the word, the one who created everything, who made the rules, right? Who decided what the magic is. He made it all. He defined the magic. And he became flesh, and, and that's where we ought to say, wait, 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 wait. We don't understand that. And we don't because we don't always get the magic just yet until it's taught to us. So the word became flesh and dwelt among us. We saw his glory, the glory as of the only begotten from the Father, full of grace and truth. And then in Hebrews, in sort of a, a taking this apart kind of a, a, a job, this writer says, when he comes into the world, he says, Sacrifice and offering you have not desired, but a body you have prepared for me. He takes away the first in order to establish the second. By this will we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once and for all. Oh, that is, that's heavy stuff to understand what this writer is talking about. So he has Jesus saying as he's coming into the world sacrifices and offering you don't want. Did Jesus come to fix religion? Well, clearly not, because God didn't want the sacrifices and offering. He wanted something else. We'll, we'll talk sometime about what all of the sacrifices and offering meant, but when Jesus comes, he says, let's be clear about this. Sacrifices and offerings didn't please God. It's not what he wanted. See, sacrifices and offerings dealt with the symptoms of the disease. 
they covered over the wound. Um, they kept the body living, but they didn't go to the cause. The sacrifices and offering weren't enough because they just dealt with the dying of us. They dealt with the fact that we are in dying bodies, in a dying system, in a world that is not working, and that needs at least some band-aids along the way. They were the band-aids of religion that said, you need to remember every year that you broke the magic. You broke this world. So here's what you need to do so I don't punish you immediately for you having broken the world, broken the magic. So you need to do this. You need to bring this offering on this regularity and this kind of an offering and so on. But Jesus says, when I came into the world, you didn't want sacrifices and offering. You prepared for me a body. They go, hmm. And that's the whole point of what the writer is saying. Instead of sacrifices and offering that could only deal with the dying, the symptoms, the death of Jesus somehow or other in the body of Jesus dealt with the disease, dealt with death. And so the writer to Hebrews says the result of this is that we will have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once and for all. What, what does sanctified mean? It means that we will be radically and eternally changed. The dying will stop. Imagine that, that the dying will stop. That death itself will start working backwards. The nearer you get to death, the more that impacts your mind and your heart. The more someone near you is impacted by the dying of our brokenness and our fallenness, the more this idea that there's a magic deeper still is something that grips your heart, isn't it? That makes you imagine. Imagine that death will be done with. That aging will be done with. For some reason these days I bump into people that I knew when I was young. And I, I hope when they look at my picture they're not as shocked as I am when I look at theirs, but I presume they are. This agingness and the cosmetics, the $50 worth, $100 worth of cream that will hide the signs of our aging, of our becoming old. Lewis says, the stone table will break and death itself will start working backwards. How? By the magic deeper still of Jesus coming and the purpose of his coming, which was for whatever reason, to die a death in a mortal body, to deal with death and dying in the mortal person. Adam and Eve were not created mortal. They were created as beings that would live forever and ever. I don't know, having lived through a life of the dying, do you want to live forever? Well, yes, actually. I would like to have my life over again. Orville, you're our token old people here, right? <laughs> do you want to do it again? Yeah, we, we do, don't we? Imagine that we will do it forever. You know, if you don't get something right the first time, don't worry. You have thousands and tens of thousands of years to keep trying it. And maybe you'll get better at it, skiing, whatever it is, right? That's the hope of the Christian life. And it's not religion. 
It's something that happened according to magic. It's something that came by what Jesus did to fix our biggest problem forever. So by this, we will have been sanctified. Death for us will have worked backwards because of what Jesus came to do. This week, Eugene Peterson died. Um, One of North America's favorite pastors. He paraphrased the message. Um, I had classes with him at Regent College. Deep and brilliant pastoral man. And he died now. And we grieve his loss. But he has left behind such lovely pieces of literature. And the message is one of those, which is the paraphrase of scripture. And here's how he talks in Romans chapter 8. He says, God didn't deal with the problem as something remote and unimportant. In his son, he personally took on the human condition. Literally, it's the word flesh or mortality. Entered the disordered mess of struggling humanity in order to set it right once and for all. The law code, weakened as it was, sacrifices and offerings, by fractured human nature, flesh or human nature, Mortality could never have done that. Here's what a a more straight translation says. For what the law could not do, weak as it was through the flesh, God did. Sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and as an offering for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh. That's a powerful phrase. He condemned sin in the flesh. That means that he judged it and he sentenced it. And it has been dealt with. Sin in the flesh, which is the reason for our dying, has been dealt with by the magic deeper still of Jesus coming and living according to a formula that was decided with his father before the creation of the world. With the foreknowledge of our fall, of our rebellion. And the son said to the father, I will go and fix it. And the father said, you don't have to. But if you will, you'll go with my blessing. And we together will fix it. We will go to the stone table, we'll break it, and we will make death start to work backwards. So Jesus came because God didn't have a body. Jesus needed a body because God needed to die. Because in the dying, he condemned the reason for our dying. Because the reason for our dying, we all own. But he had no reason to die. Because death comes because of our sickness, the sickness of sin. And Jesus didn't have that sickness. And so what the queen didn't know was that if someone who had committed no treachery was willing, that life could set free the treacherous life. And Edmund got to go free. But Aslan had to go to the stone table what the law could not do. At the risk of exposing you to too much great literature, um, get the Chronicles of Narnia. If, you're, if your grandchildren, your children don't have them, get them. They have to read them. They're beautiful stories. Every, every page, just full of magic and wonder and, and a great spin on the truths of what we know about God and Jesus. The Singer Trilogy by Calvin Miller may be my second favorite 
set of literature that's kind of off. It's either, you know, fantasy or allegory or whatever it is. But, but here's how Calvin Miller imagines this. So instead of um, Aslan and the king beyond the seas of, of Narnia, um, Miller has a father and a troubadour. The father and the troubadour sat down upon the outer rim of space. And here, my singer, said Earthmaker, is the crown of all my endless skies, the green brown sphere of all my hopes. He reached and took the round new planet down and held it to his ear. They're crying, Troubadour, he said. They cry so hopelessly. He gave the little ball to his son, who also held it by his ear. Year after weary year, they all keep crying. They seem born to weep and die. Our new man taught them crying in the fall. It's a peaceless globe. Some are sincere and desperate desire to see her freed of her absurdity, but war is here. Men die in conflict, bathed in blood and greed. Then with his nail, he scraped the atmosphere, and both of them beheld the planet bleed. Earthmaker sent Earth spinning on its way and said, Give me your vast infinity, my son. I'll wrap it in a bit of clay. Then enter Terra microscopically to love the little souls who weep away their lives. I will, I said, set Terra free. And then I fell asleep. And all awareness fled. I felt my very being shrinking down, my vastness ebbing away. In dwindling dread, all sighs decayed. The universe around drew back. I woke on a tiny bed of straw in one of Terra's smaller towns. And now the great reduction has begun. Earthmaker and the troubadour are one. They must believe that I am he. They must believe or die. Why did God have to become a mortal? Functional answer is because he needed to die. The deeper answer is because God so loved the world. God so loved the world that he said, here is this little planet full of people, and they are crying and crying and crying. They are dying. So, my son, give me your vast infinity. I'll wrap it in clay. Let's go there and fix it. Because God so loved the world. God so loved you. You, you understand that, right? He so loved you that even though you were dying, even though the Queen of Narnia was working her powers, her charms on you, and catching you in whatever ways she could, like she caught Narnia with Turkish delight. Even so, God said, let's go there and fix it. Why? Because God so loved the world. Billy Graham um, was a lovely man of God and used so powerfully by him. And around the time of, of Billy Graham's death, they were showing all kinds of clips from his crusades through the years. And do you know that every sermon was the same? It all ended like this. If you don't remember anything I tell you tonight, remember this. What is it? God loves you. Why is that so elusive? Why can't I believe that? 
Why can't I live in that? God so loved the world. That's what all this magic deeper still is about. And we need to explore it and say, well, what happened? Okay, so God needed to become immortal because God needed to die because somehow or other in his dying, he fixed the disease. But what exactly happened? I mean, there are all kinds of theories about what his death did for us. And then we have to ask, and so if, if his death did that for us, how do we live more into that? How do we live in the death working backwards kind of magic instead of the death still present with us? But the whole reason, the answer to it all is God so loved the world. But imagine the one who created everything. He is desperately in love with you. When you woke up this morning, he was looking at you and thinking, I just love her so much. How close do we get to that ever? I don't know, in romantic love, the love of husband and wife. I think perhaps the best spot is the love of grandparent for grandchild. Amen? <laughs> Where you think that child could do no wrong. Right? Well, they actually can. <laughs> God loved the world so much that he sent his son. And his son loved the world so much that he came. Why? Because in order to fix the problem, God had to become one of us. He had to become mortal to deal with the dying by dealing with the death. That's magic deeper still, isn't it? And the queen found it out too late to her peril. Father, we bless you because while all of this stretches our minds, the simple truth that you love us is not hard to understand in terms of language. It's desperately hard to understand because we fight against it. We've lived with shame and guilt and failure and brokenness and dying. So tell us again, Father, of your love for us, I pray. Especially any who are here who don't know how deep your love is for us. And even as we sing songs about you and our love for you and yours for us. May it, may it be planted in our hearts in deeper ways yet. In Jesus' name, amen.